Hello and welcome to Decoding Cancer from the Irish Cancer Society, the series that aims to answer your cancer questions. My name is Dr. Robert O'Connor, Director of Research with the Society, and over the next four weeks, I'm going to be joined by some everyday people affected by cancer as we ask the tough questions of top cancer experts who will be joining us and hopefully explain and demystify some of the topics for you, the listener. We'll be discussing everything from how and why people get cancer to the telltale signs that experts use to pick up cancer that you yourself can use and pondering whether there will ever be a cure for cancer. Our first topic is probably a question at the forefront of many of our listeners' minds and perhaps something that may occasionally even keep some of us awake at night. Why do people get cancer? What causes it? And how can we stack the odds in favour of us not getting cancer? It's a complex subject, so we are very honoured to be joined by one of the foremost international experts on all things cancer-related, Dr. Elisabetta Viderpass, head of the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer, who'll help break it down for us. Also joining us today is Catherine Egan, who was previously diagnosed and treated for breast cancer. Catherine, as someone who has lived that lived experience of the disease, perhaps it's most appropriate that we start with you. Can you maybe begin by telling us a bit about your own diagnosis and your thoughts over time on what might have caused your own cancer? Hi, Rob. Um, thanks for having me. So I was diagnosed um, in 2016 when I was 38. I was diagnosed with what is known as triple negative breast cancer. It was a shock diagnosis, I have to say. I uh, had two children and at the time they were four and two. So I was in the thick of it with them. I'd never been fitter. I was running. I was uh, eating healthy. I was healthy weight. And so everything seemed to be going quite well. So no family history, anything like that. And I found a lump and was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. Um, So you asked what would have contributed to my diagnosis. To be honest, I, I don't know. I um. As I was saying, I'd never been healthier. Uh, I had my two children. Uh, no, there was no family history whatsoever. So it was just really a bolt from the blue and not something that, uh, you know, I had ever thought w- would happen to me. There's lots of different things out there. I know one thing that came up time and time again, and I was always asked, I never investigated it uh, very deeply, but you know, was always asked, did I breastfeed my children? So that's something that was always in my mind did that contribute to the fact that I didn't breastfeed my children? And I guess it, it's, a, it's a good illustration, your experience of just what goes through people's minds. And I, I will say I've spoken to many patients and sometimes people have some um, quite disturbing views on why, what may not have contributed rather than, as you say, it's simply being a kind of a genetic bolt from the blue, um, as it were. I, I might pass on then to uh, Elisabetta. So before we get stuck into talking about the, the points that were being raised here and about cancer and its different forms and why people get it. Perhaps you might maybe spend a minute and just tell us a little bit about IARC and, and, and what it is first. Thank you very much, Rob, and, and good afternoon, everyone. So the International Agency for Research on Cancer, or IARC, is the cancer research branch of the World Health Organization. We are based in Lyon, France, and we have 26 countries supporting our work or the participating states, as we call them. And Ireland is one of them. So we, we conduct research and our specialty is research on cancer prevention. 
We also study the etiology of cancer, the prognosis of cancer, and we try to disseminate the information as widely as we can. We do a lot of uh, training, or of uh, training for young researchers in particularly, and we also have a session in our, in our institute that makes the descriptive epidemiology of cancer, meaning that quantifying the, the burden of cancer globally in terms of incidence, mortality and prevalence. Thank you very much for, for that uh, outline. I, and I suppose to get down into the meat of our discussion today, I know there are lots of ideas out there about how cancers arise and some of our listeners will have a variety of, of different uh, views and have heard different things. And some people, I suppose, can blame actions or inactions. Uh, and perhaps Catherine's introduction there even touched on some of that. So how do cancers actually arise and where do they come from? The most important human carcinogens that we know about include tobacco, asbestos, aflatoxins, ultraviolet light, among others. About 20% of all cancers are associated with chronic infections. The most significant ones being hepatitis viruses like hepatitis B and hepatitis C, human papilloma virus or HPV, and helicobacter pylori. There is also increasing recognition of the causative uh, role of lifestyle factors, including unhealthy diet, overconsumption of processed meat, physical inactivity, and alcohol consumption. Genetic susceptibility also plays a significant role, uh, but it's after environmental exposure. So a proportion of cancers are caused by genetic susceptibility, indeed. So, I mean, that's what we know about how some cancers are, are caused. But I guess, would it be fair to say that there's a, that bolt of, out of the blue and that, that kind of spontaneous or unpredictable aspect of that as well? And, and what portion of cancers uh, would we not know what the, what the cause is? Well, cancer is actually often discussed as being one disease, but uh, while unrestrained growth is, is a common denominator of all cancers, cancer can develop in a variety of different ways to a variety of different factors. Some are inherited and others are exposure to our lifestyles. It, uh, cancer can be ca categorized in hundreds of different diseases based on which type of cells it arises. And also, I mean, certainly to save lives from cancer, we need really to understand where they arise and why. So genes can mutate over time leading to cancer. These mutations can result from a variety of causes, including external exposures, including diet, lifestyle choices, and so on. Uh, overall, about between 5 to 10% of all cancers are purely genetically inherited, although these cancers are rather rare as compared to other cancers, which are mainly causes, caused by environmental risk factors. Aging is also another fundamental factor for the development of cancer. So the incidence of cancer rises dramatically with age, most likely to a build-up of risk, uh, risks for specific cancers that increase with age. The overall risk accumulation is combined with the tendency for cellular repair mechanisms to be less effective uh, when a person grows older. So would it be fair to say that everyone has a risk of developing cancer? Some people may be more predisposed because of uh, genetics because of certain lifestyle factors, but none of us are immune um, from, from cancer. Uh, and indeed, that we don't necessarily understand the origin of the majority of cancers. 
Absolutely. So most cancers are related to environmental or behavior exposures. Uh, we, I think we can safely say today that we know the etiology or the reasons why people develop about 60% of the cancers. And from this, we know that about 40% are caused by preventable factors. So that means that we can prevent likely up to 40% of all cancers. But there is a proportion of cancers, as I mentioned earlier, between 5 and 10% that are purely genetically inherited. And, and by definition, this is very difficult, if not impossible, to, to control. Yeah, so um, it's just really interesting uh, listening to, uh, to you speak there. 40% we reckon environmental or behaviour, 10% up to 10% genetic. So that would leave about 50% of cancers where it's an unknown factor. Like in my own experience, I was 38, so I was quite young. I was tested for the BRCA gene that both came back um, negative. Um, for other purposes, I know that I don't have the HPV virus. So it really would be down to that 50%, which, uh, you know, um, what I'm hearing, it was either my environment or something I did, like ate or consumed or something like that. Yes, Catherine, indeed, what you are saying is, is, is indeed absolutely correct. There is, there is a large proportion of cancers that occur and we actually don't know why. For breast cancer specifically, I believe we can explain by non-risk factors about 25% of, of all breast cancer, cancers, but there is a large proportion that we simply don't know why they occur. So it's very important that, that research goes further in trying to understand these, these cancer types that occur in women with absolutely no risk factors whatsoever, as it seems to be your case. Okay. Catherine, do you feel uh, that there's enough information out there? And, and I suppose if we look at, at, at you from kind of two different angles, one as a, a member of the public up until the age of 38, and then post 38, do, do you think that there's enough information? And do you think that sometimes there can be even a, a, almost a blame culture that somebody maybe caused their cancer through some action or inaction uh, on their own part that we seek to explain something which unfortunately is is maybe perhaps a, an inherent part of being a human being? Yeah, um, I totally uh, agree. So I wouldn't have had very much um uh, of the information to hand pre my diagnosis but if I thought about when I got diagnosed and the information started to come to me like I was young I didn't have the BRCA gene I had no family history so your mind goes to well what is it what did it and if I think about what was in my mind at the time it wasn't all this good information about environmental conditions or behavior it jumped the misinformation out there whereas I don't think there is uh, such a voice to what we're talking about here today in that um, it may not be any of those things, probably is none of those things, but it is un an unknown factor. And it's just what happens, as you said, when we're human. Elizabeth, I, I know IARC has obviously spent literally decades uh, studying these factors. Um, I, do I remember correctly that you have some some great guidebooks there for people who might want to investigate this further and look into the background? Are those available on your website? Absolutely. So IARC has indeed a program that we call the Monographs Program, where we evaluate the carcinogenicity or the potential carcinogenicity 
of different substances to, to, to make people develop, to, to lead to cancer development. And we have evaluated over 1,000 substances, and all this information is available on our website. But I think what Catherine pointed out is very important, that patients, when they get a diagnosis, they, they get, of course, shocked at, uh, to start with, and then they start desperately to, to understand. They try to understand why they got a diagnosis. And sometimes this can lead to, to searches on the web and, and they can get confused because the information on the, on the web is not always reliable and there is, in fact, a lot of, of misinformation. So certain popular ideas of how cancer starts and spreads uh, they are simply scientifically wrong, and they they can seem to make sense for a lay person, uh, but they are in fact not rooted in solid theories or and not in evidence whatsoever, and they can sometimes even hinder that good prevention and good treatment decisions. So there are many fake and misleading news and stories related to medical medical treatments. For, for cancer. And trusting these false stories can lead to, to patients to make the wrong decisions in regarding to their health. So it's very important that, that uh, the public in general and, and patients in particularly always look for the source of the information, really to trust sources which are reliable, uh, I mean, reliable uh, research age organizations and not any website. And I guess one of the things that Catherine kind of touched on there as well, and, and I've heard it over and over again from people, you know, particularly maybe a little bit younger when they've been diagnosed, they said, you know, oh, but I ate healthy, I exercised and, and that. And, and it suggests to me two things. One, that there, you know, there is that little bit of a, a blame culture out there or people either adopt self-blame or they feel that others are kind of judging them. But also that there's this perception that there is, some magic formula, like lots of exercise, a particular diet or whatever, that can just mean that they're not going to get cancer. Is that the case? Well, uh, as, as we discussed a little bit, a, la, a vast proportion of cancers, I, and it's about 40% in, in European countries such as Ireland, can indeed be prevented by, by measures which we, we know quite a lot about. And actually, IARC, my organization, has published this in the, in the so-called European Code Against Cancer, which is an initiative where we summarize all the evidence about how to prevent cancer. And we came up with 12 recommendations which are based in science and which are very solid. And they are based on, 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 on avoiding risk factors, in, in, in doing vaccination for HPV and a hepatitis B virus, to control occupational hazards, to reduce exposure to carcinogenic, carcinogenic substances and, and uh, physical exposures such as ultraviolet radiation, etc. By far, the most important cause of cancer in, in Western societies is tobacco use. So tobacco use is directly responsible for over 20% of all cancers, including in Ireland. And then there is a, a list of other uh, things and, and exposures that people can avoid for, for avoiding cancer. And avoiding an unhealthy diet and avoiding obesity is very important, as well as limiting as much as possible consumption of alcohol. Physical activity is important. 
and then re reducing risk to ionizing radiation whenever possible, both in occupational settings, but also limiting medical diagnosed imaging when they are not necessary. So all this is published in what we call the European Code Against Cancer, which is in the IARC website. And all the evidence, the scientific evidence, evidence behind these uh, recommendations are also discussed in, in a lot of detail in, in our website. I just mentioned that that's the European Code, and I think most cancer organizations globally uh, have adopted that. Certainly, if people want to look into more details, they'll find those on the cancer.ie website, which is the Irish Cancer Society website. And also more recently, the National Cancer Registry of Ireland, who collaborate with your organization, Elizabetha, they've also generated a report which examined um, 11 uh, different modifiable risk factors that you mentioned and their contribution. So people can, can go off there uh, and examine that for themselves. Catherine, I might just go back to you for a second, because you and I met actually, so met in, in the virtual sense uh, through social media and that, and, and I know you you uh, spend some time on social media back and forth, and, and particularly early in your diagnosis. Is this an issue that you would have come across in your discussions? People being concerned about what might have contributed and caused their cancer um, are the things that uh, might be important as a as a risk factor for them or, yeah, or for their absolutely. family? absolutely. Look, um, I think well, on the social media world, there is a, a lot that goes on. You know, I did everything uh, right. Look, we're not all perfect. You know, we all uh, have a drink or some people um, might have smoked in their 20s or whatever. You know, there were, were things, but pe uh, anyone that I uh, would have talked to would have... Um, been quite healthy at the time of diagnosis or there would have been some people like that so there was a, a there is a lot out there about where did I get it uh, how did I get it I was doing most things right uh, and I was trying my best and I think people are quite vulnerable you know and all these messages here today are are really really good about preventing and especially as well when you're uh, through a diagnosis and you're trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle but i think for a cancer survivor and someone who's been through a diagnosis it's quite comforting to me to look at the other side of the numbers and go well 60% um uh, you could do all those things but you still have a chance you could be you could be perfect but you still have a chance of getting a diagnosis and it wasn't something um, that I did knowingly. And if other people think differently, that's, you know, up to them, but uh, it, it's not something that I did knowingly. Elisabetta, isn't, isn't that one of the challenges, I guess, that it it is about chance and risk rather than something that's binary. So in other words, if I do an action or don't do an action that I will, you know, immediately get cancer or not get cancer or after it is, is, is that one of the challenges, I suppose, both the, the, the amount of time cancer can take to develop, but also the concept that it's it's around risk and it's about odds and so on, rather than a binary, it will happen or won't happen. Absolutely. So I totally agree and I deeply sympathize with what uh, Catherine is saying. So indeed, we know very little. I mean, we, we know some ways to prevent some cancers or a proportion of cancers, but there's a, there's a lot that we still need to learn because uh, a, a great number of cancers, we simply don't know why exactly they occur. I mean, when cells multiply, there is always a chance of error, uh, of genetic error in the multiplication. So the, the coding just gets wrong. 
and the accumulation of, of errors in, in successive divisions of cells can lead to cancer. And this uh, is, is likely the case in, in, in many, for many patients. So it's nothing that they have done wrong or is nothing wrong with their, their, their genes they inherited from, from their parents. It's just a, a accumulation of errors in, in the replication of the cells. And then the, the fact that, that sometimes the, the control mechanisms of the body that would need to kill those cells that have replicated wrongly with a wrong code, they just don't work as they should. So, and this is a whole area where we really need to go deeper and understand better why, why this is the case and if we can do something to prevent that to happen. Catherine, uh, just before we finish up then, and I might ask Elizabeth one more, one more question. How are you now? I mean, how are you managing through all of this information and, and you yeah, know, moving um, on with your life? At the moment, uh, I'm in a pretty good place. So I had my four-year checkup uh, with my oncologist there recently, four-year all-clear mammogram. Um, so that's, I'm very happy about that. I've got my eyes on the five-year uh, piece, but um, I, I do, I'm doing well. Uh, it, it's I do feel for people who are in treatment during these times and the pandemic and how difficult that must be. I'm still in touch with a lot of people who are either going through treatment or have been going beyond it. I still keep in touch heavily, which gave me an awful lot of solace and still does about the huge amount of research that goes on both Ireland and um, further afield. I have to say during some of my darkest times, that's really where I got my information. As you know, Rob, I went on Twitter. That's how we met each other. And just to know that there's this huge amount of people and support going on, researching various types of cancers, it, it, I, I took a huge amount of solace in that to think that where could we be in five years, 10 years, you know? So, yeah, yeah, it's good. And and I think as Elizabeth has said, you know, we know a bit, but uh there's there's much more out there, and I suppose you you really have highlighted the the critical importance of the hope and um, that research brings. So we might start to to wrap up there. Uh, but Elizabeth, you touched on a number of of different um contributors to to cancer risk, and I wonder if it might be useful if you might maybe summarize for our listeners, you know what what people can do. So I think we've we've gotten across the point that some um some cancers are will just happen. But there, there's a high portion, maybe four out of 10, that we can do things in our own life over our whole lifetime in our families uh, as well to reduce the chances that we will get it. So could you maybe kind of summarize those for us? Yes, absolutely. So most importantly, don't use tobacco of any kind. So don't smoke and don't expose yourself to other people who are smoking. So don't inhale it, inhale it or, or use tobacco in any form. That's rule number one. And if we could get entirely rid of tobacco globally, we would get rid of over 20% of the burden of cancer. So that's the golden rule. Don't use tobacco in any form. Then maintain a healthy diet, so a, a diet which is mainly based on plant food. So avoid um, processed meat in particular, or everything which is uh, meat that has been processed and added a lot of chemicals and preservatives and so on. 
limit alcohol as much as possible. So if you are not an alcohol drinker, don't start drinking it, thinking that this might be helpful. It's not. So try to avoid alcohol as much as you can. Try to keep a healthy body weight. Try to avoid becoming obese. Try to keep yourself active. Move every day for at the very least half an hour, a brisk walk or a run. But just going up the stairs, avoiding the elevators is already a good start. So And, and keep also encouraging the children and teaching the children at, at, to be active throughout their life. For, for young people, teenagers and, and young adults, vaccinate yourselves for, uh, for human papillomavirus. And for all ages, vaccinate yourself for hepatitis B virus. In occupational settings, it's important that you are not exposed to occupational carcinogens. And in particular here, the most important occupational carcinogen is asbestos. So we should definitely not accept to be exposed to asbestos in any form. Uh, for in particularly people uh, uh, with uh, light complexion, like people in Ireland, limit your exposure to, to sun. So if you go to, to on holidays in the summer, limit the amount of uh, sun that can burn your skin. That's not healthy. So to be tanned uh, by sunshine is not healthy and it can cause skin cancer. And then reduce your exposure to ionizing radiation, both occupational and, me- and for medical diagnosis. Limit this to as little as, as possible. So and again, all these rec- recommendations are published in our European Code Against Cancer, which is available in the Irish Cancer Society website and also in our International Agency for Research on Cancer website. Well, you've got it, got all the guide there in, in one easy soundbite from Elisabetta. I'm truly grateful to both of you for joining me today. And I hope our listeners will have uh, found the conversation interesting and enlightening. Uh, hopefully you will think of tuning in for the next three episodes. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you today. Uh, and if anyone listening at home would like to find out more uh, and support the vital research funded by the Irish Cancer Society, they can visit www.cancer.ie and also get uh, a lot of the other information that Elisabetta has mentioned there. For anyone who would like help or advice on any of the topics we've touched on today, they can contact our dedicated Irish Cancer Society support line on free phone 1-800-200-700 or email supportline at irishcancer.ie to speak to one of our specialist cancer nurses. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in for next week's episode of Decoding Cancer, where I'll be talking to the chair of Neffet's expert group on COVID-19, Dr. Killian de Gascon, as we take a look at what COVID means for cancer patients. I'll talk to you then.